The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. Hey, everybody, and welcome into the College Game Day podcast for Monday, October the 2nd, 2023. And uh, it's, it's a Marty and McGee invasion. I'm Ryan McGee, and uh, Marty Smith is joining us here. What's up, son? Hello, my friends. What an honor to be on the College Game Day podcast. I almost wore my Marty and McGee t-shirt. Yeah, you know, I probably should have, too. I don't even want to have – I have on a South Dakota State Jackrabbit shirt. And uh, and you uh, – like you got an SEC Network hat, so that's good. You're true yeah. to the deal. We're ready. And, uh, yeah, but uh, but Reese and Pete are, as they say, on assignment. So you and I are um, – they ran out of people to call, obviously. And they called us in. I'm usually on the show on Monday for a few minutes, but we're going to be on here for the duration. Uh, we're going to be joined – a little later in the show by Paulo Getty, who was there for the Colorado-USC game that we all thought was over at the half. And then it ended up being um, one of the best games of the weekend because that's just how that's just what Colorado does now. And uh, But, yeah, but so your impressions – so for, just so folks know, you and I were in Lexington, Kentucky. We were there for the Florida at Kentucky uh, matchup. And, um, and son uh, – Kentucky is part of a group of really quiet, maybe not so quiet anymore as we hit October, undefeated football teams. Yeah, I don't think Kentucky's quiet anymore. Um, they beat her, they beat a good football team. And Billy Napier, the head coach of Florida, said not only did they beat us, but they beat us up. I don't recall being beaten up like that. They dominated, they being Kentucky, dominated the line of scrimmage. They dominated a point of attack. They affected Graham Mertz, Florida's quarterback, constantly – on the defensive side throughout the game. And Ray Davis went for almost 300 on the ground by himself. And if the wide receiving core for Kentucky starts really helping Devin Leary, catching the football when it's there, they could be real nasty. Look, I, I don't know. I haven't, I'm not a better. I don't know what the line is going into this thing as we sit here on a Monday afternoon. But I mean, I expect a slobber knocker in Athens, Georgia, as you and I make our way down there later this week. Yeah, Kentucky going to Georgia. Both are undefeated. Uh, Georgia is the number one team uh, in the country still, but their grip on that is a little softer than it was a week ago. They ended up, talking about maybe surprising slobber knockers, they ended up in one. They had to come from behind to beat Auburn. And the great Brock Bowers, who might be the greatest player in the history of football, uh, you know, he saved, he saved them once again, right? But I want, but I wanted to ask you this because I've, they I've are been having targeting him more. Yeah. They are, they are openly, I mean, I think he had eight catches for more than 150 yards. Kirby Smart is rightfully so beginning the hardcore Brock for Heisman campaign. And, and he should. I mean, he's one of the most dominant players in the entire country. Uh, but but look, we said it, McGee. We said it this weekend on our show. We said it on the SEC Nation show. We said it leading up to the weekend. You just don't know when you're walking into Jordan-Hare Stadium in a rivalry game, 128th time those yep. two teams have played first time in September. Yep. And Georgia, you used the word, it's a little softer, a little shakier right now. And and Auburn played very well, very physical. So it, you know, I think it probably went down the way we should have expected it. Close game, very physical. Georgia it escapes, but All right. yeah, yeah, and Brock yeah, Bowers yeah. is the ultimate reason why he's Carson Beck's blankie. <laughs> so, all right. By the way, Carson Beck, 
he looks like so when you you and I talk about this all the time. When, when we were growing up in the eighties and nineties, I felt like all the football players looked like they were fifty six years old. Like you know, it's just they look like they look way older. And but but you just mentioned so so that game ends, and Kirby Smart is talking about how great his quarterback is, but he's young and you know still got a lot to learn. And meanwhile, his quarterback is standing there with his helmet off, and he looks like. He looked like an old picture from like the Civil War. Like he looked like he's forty five years old, right? And and you know, and and then I'm watching Notre Dame Duke, and uh, and, and you know, and, and and Notre Dame has a quarterback, obviously that has played you know college football at, at the highest level at two different schools. But he again, he's got a full beard. Like like I feel like we're back at this phase now where football players, college football players, look like they're like you know they're like fifty five years old. Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. I remember being a kid, and and I love you, Terry Bradshaw, but I remember being a kid (laughs) and seeing some feature that Irv Cross or somebody did on CBS NFL Sunday, right? Yeah, yeah. And they're they're doing a feature on Terry Bradshaw. And I was probably four or five years old. I mean, I was a kid, and my daddy loved the Steelers. He loved the Jack Ham, Jack Lambert all those, all those legends, right? Lynn yeah. Swan, John oh, yeah. Stallworth, Bradshaw, yeah. the whole squad. Jack Ham, yeah. Jack Ham, yeah. And he, <laughs> Daddy even got me a Letterman jacket. It was a Pittsburgh Steelers Letterman jacket that had pleather sleeves, That's and I best. left it too close to the running board heaters that we had in our home <laughs> growing up, melted. and so it melted. It melted the pleather sleeves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll never get over that. I was I cried like a baby. But anyway. uh they show Terry Bradshaw, and he's bald as an eagle with, like, the fine bomb, right. you know, leave the sides hairdo. Right. And I was like, Dad, is he, like, 70 years old? Yeah. Is the Steelers quarterback an old man? Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think Terry was, like, 30, you know, 28 yeah. or something. But he just – his uh, his hair was running away from that scalp like a scalded dog. But anyway, yeah. yes, you're right. They all look like they should be uh, with Andrew Luck marching in the – revolutionary yeah. war or something but seriously I, I really do i remember my, my dad officiating football in the 80s and we would go to like clemson and we would go to like you know virginia and these places you flip through the the program with all the headshots and everybody's got their everybody's got their mean you know high school program headshot on in there but they all look like like full beards and i, I don't know i just, <laughs> I just the thing about it too though <laughs> we, we were kids right yeah, we were kids yeah. at that time and so Everybody looked old. I mean, I was sitting there thinking yeah. the other day. I was sitting there thinking the other day about my teachers and my coaches growing up. They seemed so old. Yeah. Like Coach Ragsdale, my high school football coach, yeah. seemed when we were – like my senior year of high school, he seemed like he had to have been 60 years old. He was yeah. like 36. Yeah. But like but like Carson Beck, and I understand you just went through it, right? Anybody that goes through a slugfest with Auburn, you've been through it. But you look at his headshot. Like I'm looking at his headshot right now on ESPN.com, and he looks like, you know, he looks like he's in his teens. But him standing there with his helmet off, I was like, that dude looks like he is age 47 years during this game. And they're bigger, too. They're, they're so yeah, much bigger yeah. than you yeah. think they are. I went down to Oxford, Mississippi last week yeah. before you and I went to College Station, Texas, for our show for the SEC Network. And sitting across from Jackson Dart, I mean, the kid's got this massive giant Roman Harper neck. Yeah. He's got these giant thighs, and I'm like, yeah. no wonder you – but he does need to learn to slide. He's going to get himself killed if he doesn't. Yeah, well, when you're that big, you think you don't have to. But, but all right, so so we're talking about Georgia, and and you and I just saw an undefeated team in Kentucky. We're going to see two this weekend in Kentucky and Georgia. 
Um, but Georgia, Michigan, Texas, Ohio yes. State, yes. Florida State, yes. Washington, Oregon, I mean, USC, who barely got out of Colorado. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But but to you, I mean, who's the number one team in the country right now? I think it's easy to say Georgia because to be the man, you got to beat the man. But I think it's Michigan right now. I think they're yeah. the most complete. I love J.J. McCarthy. I love his moxie. He just doesn't – he's just a ball. He's just a freaking baller. I mean, he's just a baller. Blake Corum behind him is one of the best running backs, if not the best running back in the country. They're really strong across both fronts. They just have dudes. And, you know, Harbaugh's my guy. I love the way he leads those young men. He's kind of got that quirky thing. But the way that those young men buy into the quirkiness and own the quirkiness, and he's rebuilt the Michigan tradition that we're going to be blue-collar, we're going to be tough, we're going to hit you in the teeth, that had been – absent for a while and in fact he was criticized for his first several years in Michigan but I just think that they are great and and I say that with you know you and I feel very strongly often that the SEC West is the most difficult division in sports and it's certainly one of them but I'm not sure the Big Ten East this year with how great Michigan is how great Ohio State is how great Penn State is with Drew Aller uh that's a hell of a league, but I think right now I'm gonna take the the Wolverines. Yeah, no, it's and it's um and I keep looking at Texas, man. You know, I if I'm being 100 percent honest with you, I've not watched a Texas game from beginning to end uh, since the Alabama game. You and I were there that weekend, and um, but but and and honestly, I think that just like I reward Georgia because of what they've done the last couple of years, I penalize Texas in my mind. Because of what they've done, you know, I mean, since their national championship game, you know, whenever USC, which has come up short. And so it's the whole Texas's back rule. But man, they're so good. And, and Quint Ewers against Kansas, who's, who's really good, by the way. They're ranked and, and all that. But, but Quint Ewers showed us he can run and, and showed us that, you know, he should be in the Heisman conversation and Texas oh, should and be in the national conversation. Yeah, and will be. And now they've got, by the way, Oklahoma's 5 and 0. Right. Well, we talk, yeah, we talk all the time, though. It's funny. We've made a joke out of it now on our show. For those of you watching the College Game Day podcast who might not be familiar with our program that we do on Saturday mornings in the fall, I take a, t- no matter where we visit, whatever, whatever university or game we visit, I take one team, McGee takes the other team, and we call the respective coach during the week and inquire about key points to victory against that respective particular opponent. And it's gotten to be a joke between us because invariably you hear about turnovers and you hear about what, McGee? Explosive, Explosive plays. plays. Constantly. <laughs> it's the number. I mean, Kirby, I interviewed Kirby Smart seven times last season en route to their second consecutive national title. He's like, Marty, dude, just take what I told you last week. Like, yeah. like this is – it is explosive plays are the number one difference maker between winning and losing in today's college football. And where I'm going with that is – Texas is as explosive a team as there is with with a, a tremendous with wide receiving core with A.D. Mitchell and Xavier Worthy. And Ewers is just – I mean, I don't even know if elite passer is a good enough a good enough way to describe it. He's just a stud. Yeah. No, there's no question about it. And, and then, um, to me, there's that first group we're talking about, which are – which the question is, who's number one? Um, and then there's – to me, there's three groups of these undefeated teams, right? Because – 
I don't believe that anyone thinks that Penn State is ready to contend for a national championship yet, and they certainly probably have their questions about USC after what happened to Colorado, fair or unfair. Um, but there's that second group, and then to me, we're, and it's where we get to Oklahoma, is that third group, right? And you get outside of the top ten. Uh, Notre Dame's at ten at five and one. Alabama's at eleven at four and one. And then you got Oklahoma undefeated, Washington State undefeated, North Carolina undefeated. And then you go back to Miami at 17, Kentucky, who we were just talking about, Missouri, who can't stop winning. And then Fresno State, Louisville closing out the top 25. There's that third group right there. And Oklahoma, to me, uh, is the leader of that group. And we're talking about guys who are 75 years old. Dylan Gabriel um, has been playing college football since you and I were in college. And he is, they are very quietly kind of getting it rolling man well, you got to think too like i go all the way back to the covid season in 2020 when i was doing sidelines uh that year because we didn't have a whole lot of studio studio coverage uh, during right. covid but i did a couple of georgia tech games that fall in fact i did three of them i did uh clemson notre dame and ucf which is where dylan gabriel was with Jeff Lebby and Josh Heupel. And now, you know, he's he's with Lebby at Oklahoma, and he's a really capable young man. He's a good player. And I love BV. Um, Brent Venables has a tremendous way to motivate, and he's good at scheme too. I like Oklahoma. I, I, I don't – again, I don't bet. I don't know the lines right now as we open the weekend, but I think that that's going to be a close football game. As explosive as Texas is – rivalry game legendary rivalry game and you just you never know what's going to happen and i like i like what what bv's got down there norman yeah and by the way we are in the midst of what we call the weekend review and the weekend review is brought to you by dr pepper it ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold dr pepper the one fans deserve. And by the way, I'm not Marty and I get accused all the time of having fake Southern accents on social media. It's true. Uh, Even that, by other writers. Yeah, that word ain't was literally like written in the copy. So I don't want anybody to think I was just throwing in an extra ain't uh, just to make it sound like we were, we were actually Southern. Heaven forbid. <laughs> hey, and by the way, speaking of the Week in Review, uh, there was obviously a lot of news. Uh, the good news uh, out of Duke, where College Game Day was this past weekend and ended up being a, a, a thriller against Notre Dame, is that Duke's quarterback, who the last time most of us remember seeing him, uh, Riley Leonard, was being helped off the field, uh, Pete Dammel, who normally would be co-hosting this show right now, uh, he has reported that's a high right ankle sprain. Uh, and he says that the they've been told there's a realistic chance of returning later this month for the Blue Devils. The good news is, is that Duke has this weekend off. They have a bye week. So there's a pretty good chance that Riley Leonard uh, could be back on the field for Duke. And, man, what an atmosphere. I, that is a stadium. I talked about this last week when I sat down with, with Pete and um, and Reese. I, I was thinking about this when I saw game day was going there. Just because I grew up in Raleigh, my dad was an ACC official, I think maybe second only to maybe Neyland Stadium where I went to school and maybe Alabama, where you and I have had to have been so many times, you know, since the SEC Network launched because of what Nick Saban has done. I think Wallace Wade Stadium might be the place I've been to the most hmm. uh, for for actual games. And I love the fact that it, it was on the list, the very small list of schools where game day had not been. 
And and I give props to the Duke uh, folks for showing up because the atmosphere there was crazy to the point that the Notre Dame coaching staff acknowledged that the atmosphere was a problem, which is uh, caused them. I never thought I would say that about Wallace Wade Stadium, but man, what a uh, what a night they had down there. And I know it was a heartbreaker, but the good news is is that it sounds like they're going to get the quarterback uh, back sooner than later. That's a tough injury for him. Because, I mean, yep. high ankle sprains are are rough in the first place, but. You know, when you're trying to push off and drive the football, it's hard to do that sometimes when you when you kind of got an injury like that where where you where you're trying to push off and drive the football. But he's a great player. I love what Coach Elko has done there. We talk all the time about teams taking on their their head coach's personality. Mike's a defensive guy. He's a tough guy, uh, and and it's just wild to me. Um, we're in Lexington, Kentucky last weekend. We're in at Duke University with college game day last weekend, and we all wondered if it was basketball season for a second. Yeah, right? I mean, and, well, and props, by the way, to Kentucky fans. I was thinking about this flying back on Saturday when we were Lexington. You and I have been doing Marty McGee on the road now for this or a third season. I don't remember a crowd being as crazy as that one was. Now, granted, it helped that we were basically inside. We were, we were, in, we, we were blocking the tunnel to get into the stadium. But they showed up early. And uh, and Coach Stoops challenged them to pound some beers to get ready for a, a noon kick, and man, they were tuned up on Saturday morning, were they not? Yeah, not just with cold beer either. I don't think being in Kentucky, I'm sure they got on that brown water just a little bit too. But so grateful to them. I mean, you're right. Uh, we're on from nine to ten Eastern time, um, and the, the I mean, there was a lot of people there. And as we yeah. made our way through the morning, it wound up being 8, 10, 12 deep all the way behind the set, all the way into the stadium. Yeah. And so it was a wonderful scene, and, and they were loud the whole time, and the Wildcats uh, paid them back for their for their uh, attendance and their loyalty by just pounding the Gators. And by the way, um, the most important uh, – breaking news of that day was that we mentioned stoops and we mentioned the amazing job he's done at kentucky he makes he makes bourbon now and um and there's a there's a picture they sent us of marty proudly holding up a bottle of the stoops bourbon and me laughing so hard i couldn't get on with the next part of the show because i'm like man i can't believe we're doing this on tv right now (laughs) well he was very grateful i can tell you that he was he was very grateful i heard from him that uh we showed off his RD Distillery <laughs> Bourbon, RD One yeah. Bourbon, and uh, yeah. I fully expect some to be in the mail, Coach. Thank you. If, if you're going to be the coach of of the Kentucky Wildcats, and you and you all you do is win nine games a year and go to bowl games every year, which is what he does now, then yeah, you get to uh, you're destined to make your own bourbon in the bluegrass hills of Kentucky. I think that's I think that's a uh, that's kind of your people up there. So I think it's I think it's mandatory. Yeah, I'm uh. <laughs> Like I say, my my, I'm waiting with bated breath to receive some RD one, uh, one hundred two proof Mark Stoops bourbon. You know, I, I you know I'm not a big bourbon drinker, and I think part of it goes back to what I was talking about earlier is that my dad would referee football games, and my brother and I would collect the cups. Like we we I mean hundreds of stadium cups. This is, this is in the glory days of the 80s and 90s of you know really nice stadium tumblers, right? And we have them from all over the ACC. And I think part of my bourbon issue is I've got PTSD from when you – so when you, in the North Carolina, all these stadiums in the Carolinas, you go get those cups. One of three things is going to be in the cup. It's either going to be empty tobacco or it's going to be full spit. of tobacco spit 
or it's going to be or smell like bourbon. And I think that might be part of why I have a hard time because I was 12 years old covered in bourbon and, um, you know, um, some sort of Copenhagen juice. <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't dip or drink bourbon. That's, uh, no that's, comment. That's, it's like Indiana Jones falling in the in the in the snake in, you know, in, in the snake pit, right? And they, they don't want to have anything to do with snakes. All right, you have a book out. I do. just dropped a week ago. Uh, Sideline CEO, folks need to get it. You, you go. It, it really is. I mean, it, the way it's laid out is you 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 lay out certain topics, and then you have these legendary coaches speak on those topics. And I'm curious. I, I look at Alabama, right? And Saban is a guy that you know as well as any member of the media in the nation, if not better. Um, they were kind of thrown on the scrap heap because of the Texas loss. They and were. then they, and they didn't look very good after that. Now, all of a sudden, after the last two weeks, Nick Saban suddenly, Kale Surprise, has not forgotten how to coach football. And Alabama has not forgotten how to play football. What do you think Nick Saban – with your sideline CEO cap on, what do you think he's been telling this team for the last two weeks? I don't think it – well, the fact that they escaped against South Florida obviously was colossal, right? Yes. Okay, they get the win. They issue the lesson to Jalen Milrow to be a great leader. They reinstitute him into the lineup and instantly say this is his team, which is the right choice. He's the right guy. He's probably – more often than not, the best athlete on the field every time he's on the field. So how do you help him? You have to help him with design quarterback runs, with running the football, getting downhill, imposing your will at the point of attack. Alabama's offensive line hasn't been spectacular this year, especially when they're passing the football. So if you can stay ahead of the chains and stay on schedule, then what? You can take a few shots off play action when you're running the football well. And that's what they've started to do. Tommy Reese, the offensive coordinator, they've started to tailor the offense to Jalen Milrow's skill set, which is what you have to do. I mean, the years of, uh, of saying, okay, this is our system and you're going to run what we say you're going to run – Right. just don't really apply anymore. Right. It just doesn't work. And you go back all those years to where it really changed in Alabama was when Lane Kiffin showed up because Nick Saban realized that setting up in the I formation with the Derrick Henrys of the world and all that, that was going to – we were going to evolve because RPO was here, wide open, spread offenses, slinging it all over the yard 40, 50, 60 times. And so – it's the willingness to evolve by Coach Saban. That's one of the, the kind of pillars that I have in Sideline CEO is that evolutionary process. And it's, you know, classic Eckhart Tolle. If you don't evolve, you die. Kirby Smart said to me, said that to me in the book. Part of Kirby's great evolution is the willingness to delegate. He said he micromanaged for so long and did not become a championship caliber leader and championship winning coach until he realized, okay, I've hired these people to do this job at a very high level. I got to trust them to do it. And when he finally did that, they win national championships. And so all of those things are intertwined. The process is the process, and that's what Alabama's doing right now. It's it fascinates me when you watch these coaches and when they don't evolve, and then when they do evolve. Listen, Eli Drinkwitz said it to us on Marty McGee on Saturday morning. We had him live, and he said, you know, he he brought it up without us even asking about giving up play calling. 
for the first time in his career. Look at Jimbo. Yep. Exactly right. And, and, and it's, um, and it's hard to do, man. And we've seen coaches try to do it before Jimbo and, and it either works or it doesn't. And then they become reluctant to do it, but it's, it's the most difficult part of the job of being that sideline CEO. I mean, Mac Brown to me is the star of your book. And I'm always go back to the story that he told me about when he took the job at Texas and he'd come there from North Carolina. And I was like, so what was the difference? He goes, well, I'll give you the difference. He said, Ryan, he said, I'm walking from the football building to the practice field and a helicopter lands and they're like coach you got to get on this helicopter well why because it's the governor's wife's birthday and you have to make an appearance at the party tonight and he's got his he's got his 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 play sheet he goes i gotta get ready for oklahoma state nope you're getting on the helicopter right and so there's that there's that hard balance that they all have to figure out and the ones who evolve make it work and the ones who don't um they're probably not coaching there anymore. Talking about delegation, Coach Saban's done a good job of delegating, but he was hilarious to me in the book. He's like, look, I hear every play call. I have last right of refusal on every single thing they decide. Yep. I'm letting them do it until I we get to a, a critical situation where I feel like I need to step in and maybe offer some insight. And – it's just amazing these tenured individuals who have done it at the highest level for a long time and sustained that level of excellence and that expectation of being elite. It's so hard to do. It's hard to be relevant and stay relevant. And I mean, nobody's ever done it better than Coach Saban. Yeah, like like at any topic when it comes to college football, and it's that idea of being the CEO, which is what you are. You're, you're the CEO of a multi-million-dollar organization. I talked to Deion Sanders about it a week ago when I flew out to Boulder and Paul Getty, who was, was at the game uh, this past week is going to join us in a few minutes. And, and he's going to talk about that too, but it's that same idea, right? Especially for someone who is still a relatively new coach. Um, you evolve if you've been a coach for five years and you evolve if you're Nick Saban and you've been a coach at so many places over the course of decades. Cause if you don't, uh, it will catch up to you. And we're seeing it, you know, again, looking at those rankings and, and looking at those teams that are undefeated right there. And, you know, again, going back to Oklahoma, that's still a head coach that's kind of figuring it out a little bit. Yep. And uh, and to his credit, he's not doing the things that he did a year ago, and it shows in the game plan. Well, it's Harbaugh, too. I mean, like yep. going back to Coach Harbaugh, Ward Manuel gave Jim Harbaugh time. Like, it, we, we talked about this last week with Mark Stoops at Kentucky. The administration gave him time yep. to build something. And in so many cases – they aren't given that time. It's a couple years, and you either win or you're gone. I mean, you look at Jimbo Fisher. He's in year six now. He was very reluctant to give up the play calling and actually delegate that to somebody else. We all wondered how the Bobby Petrino marriage was going to work. Well, right now they're still on that honeymoon, baby, because it's working pretty great. Yeah. And, like, I mean, going back to Saban, McGee and I talk about this a lot, y'all. When the number one – uh, women's golfer or women's tennis player comes to the University of Alabama on her recruiting trip, the one person that she has to see is Nick Saban. And so it is hiring and firing. It is crisis management. It is budget. It is donors. It is fundraising. The recruiting schedule in college football is so freaking out of whack. I mean, it's all of this macro view stuff. So living in the granular nuance of game planning, it just doesn't work for most people. 
in today's world. Yep. No, it's um, it's evolve or die, man, and it's and it's die in terms of football. You know, are are you going to stay relevant, aren't you? Talking about Deion Sanders, as soon as he was done with our press conference a week ago Tuesday, uh, leading into the USC game, you know where he was going? He was going to uh, women's basketball media day. Number one, because his daughter plays for the team, but number two, because he wanted to help the coach recruit. <laughs> so it's go, just see? you know he didn't know that was going to be part of his job, and now it is. So all right, eight. Hey, I will see you, uh, man, when you're done uh, with week two of the Sideline CEO book tour. I will see you on an airplane as we head uh, we head down to – or actually, I'll see you on I-85 South driving past the Big Peach yes, as sir. we head down to uh, Athens, Georgia for um, what is suddenly a big old gigantic football game between the Wildcats and the Bulldogs. Grateful for the platform, brother. Love spending time with you. You're my boy, Blue. And – uh Got another title now. I mean, McGee's got as many titles as he's got hometowns, y'all. And now he's a college game day podcast host, too. <laughs> there you go. Huh, son. Huh, fakeaccent.com. <laughs>
some people, I don't, I don't think I saw fans filing out by any, you know, in any way, but I think they kind of were resigned uh, a little bit after halftime of, okay, this is, it's kind of like a repeat of the Oregon game. USC is going to come out in the second half and really just, you know, put a stamp on this game and, you know, done, but little things here and there, even with the offense, right. Just the, you know, the, Caleb throws an interception. The defense starts to, you know, allow big play, especially from a mobile quarterback, which seems to be their biggest issue. So Shadur starts really finding his groove and suddenly, you know, oh, we got a game here, you know, and I think USC in those positions, in those spots, they have really had a tendency to struggle and just just play sloppy and let them back into the game. That's kind of what happened, which, you know, we got a cool finish out of it. So it was, it was good in that sense. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Caleb Williams because it, he, I've not spent a lot of time around him. Uh, I, I actually covered him more in person when he was in Norman than I have since he went out to the West Coast. But I'm always fascinated by, you know, I'm 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 a lot older than you, right? So I remember when you would never give a Heisman, the voters would never give a Heisman to an underclassman. Now it happens all the time, and I work with Tim Tebow, and we talk about this all the time about the really kind of unfair measuring stick for the guy who's come back, you know, with the Heisman Trophy. You know, I watched the game the weekend before, and the poor guy gets hit, you know, uh, in the family jewels, and, and it takes a couple drives to recover like it would any other human. And what are they saying? They're saying, man, he just doesn't look great tonight, you know? And, and in this game, it's, man, he's. So tell me about Kayla Williams. What's he like in person? How's he handling all this? And oh, by the way, through, you know, six touchdown passes on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's definitely raised the bar for himself, right? I feel like the standard that he gets held to is pretty pretty remarkable because of what he did last season is you have, you know, the guy who went out there and won the Heisman and did it pretty commandingly. And now he is, you know, just basically putting up, you know, great numbers in, in halves or in three quarters. Like the last few games, he hasn't had to play the fourth quarter because he was, he's usually up by that time, you know? And so his numbers are not maybe amazing, but they're still incredibly good. And you have a game like, you know, Saturday we, where he had to go out there and throw six touchdowns. And then it becomes a whole different deal where you're like, okay, this guy is playing at a ridiculous level, right? And the way he's handled it is pretty interesting to me. I mean, he's kind of become pretty big celebrity, <laughs> I would say, uh, in terms of college football and then and, and just out the outside world too, in general. They know his name. They know he's going to be like the number one draft pick. So he's, um, he's very internal a, a lot of the times, but then you see little flashes of, you know, that kind of competitive fire that personality that's definitely there. I think he's just trying to be as cool, cool, calm and collected as he can. But um, the way I, the way I've kind of described it is I think the way you've seen him even treat social media or how he handles things is like, he's the first kind of superstar Gen Z quarterback, right? I think we've had a few millennial (laughs) star quarterbacks. I think Patrick Mahomes probably falls into that bucket who he he gets compared to a lot. Um, He's kind of got more of a Gen Z vibe, the way he posts on Instagram, the way he kind of handles his business. It's a, it's a little different, that's for sure. He's the first, I mean, I, I argue, he's the first legit like person who's shown us what an NIL superstar could be, right? Mm-hmm. The, the question was yep. always, like Tim Tebow, what, what would it have been like if Tim Tebow or if Deion Sanders or if any of these guys had had the NIL platform or the ability to transfer or to do and he not only did a transfer and not only did he win a Heisman but my daughter who could care less about any of this knows who he is because he sells Wendy's hamburgers you know every Saturday so to, so to me you know I think he's he's gonna be the prototype for whatever this is gonna be going forward is that fair 
Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I think he's hit on, like you were saying there, every sort of checkpoint when it comes to like the modern right superstar college quarterback. I think he's be, he's made a move through the transfer portal to follow a, a coach to a different place that could get him more exposure and better talent and parlayed all of that into a wonderful season that then became a Heisman, right? And now that's kind of become the stepping point to the number one draft pick. And so it's all kind of building on each other in a way that's, you know, if you talk to his dad and if you listen to them sort of tell you their plan, I guess it's like, oh, it literally worked out kind of how they were envisioned, right? And they prioritized the right things. Uh, but it's still just such crazy kind of path to see of, of him hitting, like like you said, like every sort of marker. And then also just capitalizing on that popularity to become, you know, not just a costable quarterback, but really a star in, 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 other way, in other ways than one. Which, by the way, I love talking about uh, Paul. Your piece on ESPN.com. I love you letting us know that his dad was in that press box. <laughs> yeah, kind of. You know, he's in dad's dad, right? I don't care who you are. I don't care if your kid's playing Pop Warner or if your kid's playing. You know, is it defending Heisman Trophy winner or wanting to win a national championship? You're still pacing the floor and wringing your hands because you want them to do as well as they could possibly do. I love the fact that you that you saw that you you brought us that. So thank you. I, I love that story. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah, I saw him. Typically, I mean, he, he wouldn't be in the press box, so I'm not sure what the reason was. I probably should have asked him, like, you don't, you don't have a seat, you know, or anything. Uh, but he was yeah. just up there with a couple people, and, and I saw him multiple times. So he was there pretty much the whole game, just standing and, and watching and kind of, like, living and die with every play. So, yeah, it was it was kind of a fun little scene uh, in Bolt there for sure. Well, Caleb Williams had the great stage last weekend. He's going to have another one coming up. I mean, no offense to Arizona. That's who they host this weekend. But then it's they go to Notre Dame, which is really hard. Utah, they finish the season. Washington, Oregon, UCLA. But I want to ask you this. So, the you know, you are a um, – you're a Southern California guy. You went to USC. Um, the last time I had dinner in L.A., I was with you. Um, but I was on the USC campus uh, right around that same time. And a guy dressed head to toe in USC gear recognized me from from Marty McGee or whatever, and he goes, "Hey McGee," and I said, "Yeah." And he he took his hands and he pointed at all of his Trojan stuff and he goes, "What the hell are we doing?" And I go, "I don't know, man." I was like, "Enjoy Piscataway." I don't know what to tell you. What what's the mood in Southern California right now that the count? We're halfway through the regular season almost. The countdown is officially on. UCLA and USC will be playing in you know what used to be the the Legends and Leaders division, right? In the Big Ten, what, what, what's the mood right now as that countdown has started? I think there was a little bit of initial shock to the move at first. I would say that's that was a general vibe, but also I think um, and other fans of other teams will tell you this that USC fans have a bit of a superiority complex when it comes to their place in the Pac-12 and in probably in college football, obviously but kind of every riding conference, off those. Every conference, right. <laughs> and my SEC yeah. people tell you about Alabama. My ACC people tell you about North Carolina. Big Ten will tell you about that Ohio. Texas in the Big 12. They're, they're, every conference has that, but you're, you're 100% yep. right. Yeah, and that's who USC has been, right? I mean, until they had some struggles in the last 10 years, they were kind of that team, right? But the, the fans and sort of the, the energy around the team still has that feeling about it. And so I think there was almost like, a, oh, yeah, of course we're going to the Big Ten because we deserve – better uh, kickoff times, better matchups, better, you know, more money, more revenue. Like, I don't know how deep the fans were thinking of it in terms of all the other cascading effects. But I think just from like, oh, yeah, we of course, we're going to go play, you know, Ohio State and Michigan. And it's going to be weird, but it's, you know, 
yeah, that's where the sport is going. So that's where we're going to be because we should be at the forefront of it. So I think there's definitely that, that kind of, um, uh, feeling around the move. I think that they're, everybody sort of resigned to the fact that that's just like where everything is going. And they feel like at least USC made the, the right move, um, pretty early on. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I would characterize the, the energy around it right now. Well, and is everyone around the Pac-12 right now going, why couldn't we have done all of this in 2019? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, man. So I, I've talked to Oregon fans, and it's funny. I've talked to Oregon fans before they also went to the Big Ten, and they were, like, upset at USC and UCLA for doing that, you know? And they are like, what is this going to you know, be? Like, uh, you know, I hate this. And now, you know, they're going, they're, they're following suits. It's just a, it's a, it's a brand new world for everybody to just kind of, you know, throw away rival, not, not rivalries, but just throw away what they thought was kind of the norm and see what else is coming up. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in my corner of the world, 3000 miles away from you, the idea of North Carolina and Stanford playing not in the sun bowl, but like in a conference game, it's just it's crazy, I don't know, man. It's yeah. Who who knew you and I would be covering the same conference? There you go. Two different coasts. Yeah, the all coast conference. All right, Paul Ugetti, thank you, man, uh, and I appreciate the time and and bring us a little insight on uh, on what has become. I mean, I know there's haters, but the reality is Boulder, Colorado. There's a reason we've I, I, you and I think the last ESPN employees haven't been there yet this year, mm-hmm. and so we've been there now, and so uh, it's it's the epicenter. Once you've been there, it's hard to argue with that, isn't it? Yeah. No, I literally was standing on the sideline right there, and I said – I took turned around a few people, and I said, this is the hottest place in college football right now, and it's not even close. So yeah. we'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> yeah, like USC back in the day. Couldn't have seen it coming. All right, Paulo, thank you for the time. Thank you to Marty Smith, and thank you all for listening and, uh, and downloading. As always, we'll be back with the ESPN College Game Day podcast on Wednesday. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, go to the internet and watch some old uh, Pac-12 games, and we can start reminiscing right now. <laughs>